Our text is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we are walking our way through the the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this morning, we are beginning chapter three. And it's funny, the, the passage begins finally. And then Paul goes on for two more chapters. And people have wondered, like, why did Paul say finally and then write for two more chapters? And some people said, well, that's a preacher for you. You think he's finishing, but he's really only halfway done. Uh, we, we don't know. My own personal opinion is that he, he thought he was finishing and then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit decided he had some more to say. But whether Paul is consciously at the end or the middle of the letter, we do know that he's wanting to bring us back to the main point of the letter. He's wanting to refocus us on this, this topic of joy. He's wanting us to understand this joy that he's experiencing and this joy that Jesus promises will will last us through every trial and every pain and every kind of suffering that we could imagine. So that's Paul's main point. And in this passage, he's telling us there are some things that we need to understand about joy if we're going to experience the benefits of that joy. I think everyone in this room probably knows that I I grew up in Orlando and I moved away for about 20 years and I've recently come back and it, and I have a confession I need to make to you in coming back. And you always get everybody's attention when you, the preacher says, I have a confession to make, but in coming back, one of the joys of coming back has been reconnecting with a lot of my friends that I grew up with, went to church with, went to high school with, went to college with, um, people I knew in lots of different ways. But I can tell that when I interact with these old friends, I see this game of comparison coming up in my soul. 
You know, I, I don't want to compare my life to theirs. I, I don't mean to compare my life to theirs, but if I'm not careful, I begin to, to see that I'm looking for ways that I could look at somebody's life and just find one area, one area where I feel like it's going better in my life. And I don't think I'm alone in this game of comparison. And I, I don't think that anybody in here who does that consciously wants to do it, but we have a natural inclination to do this when we go to a family reunion or a class reunion or we just go home and and visit our friends in the town we grew up in you know we are going to be tempted to look at people and say got a better job than you got a better wife than you make more money than you my kids are better behaved than yours you know you know you're really getting desperate when you begin to compare uh the body (laughs) Ooh, she's really let herself go. <laughs> or I've got more hair, hair on my head. You know, the, we begin to make these comparisons that really don't matter. So why do we do it? Why do we make these comparisons? We do it because we think it's going to give us joy. We think that if we, if we can find one area of our life that's better than their life, that that's going to give us joy that we know we inherently lack. But instead of giving us joy... It wears us out and it robs us of the very joy that we're seeking. We wear ourselves out as we posture against people. We wear ourselves out as we try to find worth in things that have no inherent eternal value. We wear ourselves out believing the lie that we matter more. We, are, we have more value if we are better than somebody else in one of these worldly areas. And when we engage in this game, when we are looking to our own confidence, to our own accomplishments to find value in this life, not only are we not going to find the joy that we're looking for, what we will find is exhaustion, pride, and ultimately despair. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about in this text. He is saying we have to understand some things about joy if we're going to have the kind of joy that Paul's wanting us to have. And he says specifically, there are two things that I want you to know about joy. I want you to know and be keenly aware of the enemies of joy that are all around you and inside you. And I want you to know the source of true joy. So those are the the two things that we're going to pull out of this passage, the enemy of joy and the source of joy. So first, the enemy. The enemy of joy is confidence in the flesh. And we see that really clearly right off the bat in verse 3. Paul says, for we, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And his statement, don't put confidence in the flesh, is based on this other statement, we are the circumcision. Okay, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> we have to understand what Paul means when he says we are the circumcision to understand what he's saying and not taking confidence in the flesh. And I know there are some children in the room and, and I don't want to assume that every one of you knows what circumcision is. And so I think it's really important that you know and I want to tell you to ask your parents immediately following the service because they would love to answer that question. It is important to know, but I will leave it to your parents. So what exactly is Paul saying when he says, we are the circumcision? To understand that, we need to understand the role of circumcision in the Bible because it's progressively building up to something profound. 
circumcision in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, is the way God marked the males in the community of his people. That's how God marked the males in the community of his people. So how did you become a part of the people of God in the Old Covenant? You were born. (laughs) You were born into it largely, so the sign was applied at birth. That makes sense. But we know there was a problem with the Old Covenant. That's why we have a New Covenant, right? There was a problem. What was that problem? Well, the problem is really clearly articulated in Romans 9 through 11. And the problem is that the way the Israelites developed, you had this big community of people all with the mark of circumcision on them. But really, there was only a core of believers. So you had unbelievers and believers all with the same mark. And God's saying, that's not okay. And this is why Paul... Well, let me back up a little bit. Jeremiah. God says to Jeremiah that I don't want all the people who have my external mark or many of them to be marked by unbelief. And so Jeremiah says, speaking for God, circumcise yourselves to the, to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it, Because of the evil of your deeds. So God is saying he's going to fix this problem by going straight to the heart. Which which makes sense. He wants all who are marked to be truly his. That's the promise of the new covenant. So we see that the whole picture of circumcision in the Old Testament is pointing towards a, a changed heart. A circumcision of the heart. That's what's being built here. And that's why... Most famously, Jeremiah in chapter 31 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts for they shall all know me and I will remember their sin no more. So he's fixing the problem by making the mark internal. And this is why Paul says to the Romans, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So this part has to be really clear. And this is the heaviest lifting that we're gonna do all morning. This has to be clear. There's a problem In the Old Covenant, you had a remnant of believers inside this larger body of unbelievers in the people of God. And God is saying, I don't want them all to have the same mark. I want to mark the believers. So in the New Covenant, I'm going to circumcise hearts. And my people will be marked by circumcised hearts. And that's the covenant that we live in. And so it it makes a lot of sense, right? You, in the Old Covenant, you became a member of the people of God by being born into it. And so the sign circumcision was applied then. Now in the new covenant, you're marked if you're in his, if you're a member of his body, if you're one of his people by a changed heart. And so now we apply the sign baptism when that changed heart happens. That's the continuity between the covenants. That's what circumcision is building up towards. And we need to understand this. (laughs) We need to have this biblical picture of circumcision to understand that God's plan has always been about the hearts. He cares about the hearts of his people. And this is why Paul's saying, we're the circumcision. 
we're the true people of God because our hearts have been changed. It doesn't matter what external sign you put on any of the people, we're the true circumcision. Do not listen to the things that they're saying that you need to do to gain favor with God. We're the true circumcision. Our hearts have changed. And if we don't understand that the whole mission of God is about our hearts, redeeming our hearts, renewing our hearts, then we're gonna look for joy in all these other places. We're gonna begin to play this game of comparison in all these other places because we're trying to find the joy that we know we inherently lack. And this is a game that will emotionally exhaust us and spiritually destroy us. And so I really, I love the way Paul here, he, he steps into this game of comparison and he said, all right, if you, you wanna play this game of comparison, if this is gonna go well for anybody, it's gonna go well for me. <laughs> let's go, let's play, let's compare. That's a paraphrase. Let me read what he actually says. <laughs> Though I myself has reason for confidence, have reason for confidence in the flesh, if we, anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Spiritually speaking, Paul is the guy at the class reunion with the perfect job, making all the money, the vacation home, the pretty sweet wife, the 2.5 kids who are well-behaved and well-accomplished, and he has a family name that's gonna ensure that his life is always easier than yours. Yet he's saying, even though I have all those things, they did not provide me the joy that I sought. So in these two verses, Paul gives us six ways that he's tempted to find confidence in the flesh, and I think six ways that that we can be tempted to find confidence in the flesh. And if you're thinking, man, this two-point sermon just became an eight-point sermon, you're right, but, but I'll try to go fast through these six things. All right, how might Paul, in, in light of that we, be tempted to find confidence in the flesh? First, and I got this one from John MacArthur, ritual. Paul says, circumcised on the eighth day. In the Greek, it actually says, as, as for circumcision, I'm an eighth dayer. Not only was I circumcised as the ritual says I should, do, should be, it was done to me on the eighth day, just like the law prescribes. Then I don't want to, I don't want to minimize ritual in in the life of our church. Um, I grew up in a Presbyterian church and something very special happened to me when I was a baby. And and I'm I'm told by all who were there, it was very special, but it didn't save me. There are no no religious rituals that we have. It doesn't matter if we we can look at all these things that we might do. We can go to church, go to mass, walk an aisle, pray a prayer. All these things might have a role in the Christian life, but it when it comes to providing the joy that we're looking at, ritual is never going to suffice because the gap between us and God is too big and any ritual we might perform is just going to be too small. So if there's anyone who mastered ritual, it was Paul and he's saying that didn't do it for me. Secondly, we can be tempted to put confidence in our cultural privilege. Paul says he is of the nation of Israel. There is an always has been and will always be something called cultural privilege until the day Jesus comes back. And in the arena of spiritual cultural privilege, nobody has a culture that should help him out more than Paul. He was an Israelite. He's clearly, if you look at 
what he's writing to the Romans, he's proud of his Jewish heritage. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way, but not in the realm of salvation. We should be proud of our cultures. We should celebrate our heritages. But when it comes to the problem of our hearts, our distorted hearts, our sinful hearts, our cultural privilege offers us nothing. So third way, maybe we could be tempted to put confidence in the flesh. It's a good family name. Paul says, you want to talk family name? I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. All right, I, I'm, I'm the Rockefeller of the Israelites. Benjamin was one of the most privileged tribes because he was the younger brother of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. So Paul's name brought him something. But the tribe of Benjamin mattered nothing when it comes to our relationship with our creator. I had a buddy in high school who had a very important last name in the city. And he and some friends got pulled over one night. And, uh, and the police officer said, let me see your IDs. And he took out his ID and he flicked it into the chest of the police officer. He said, check out my last name. And the police officer picked up his ID and said, you'll be safe. You may go. A strong family name does something in our society. It may help you in a tight spot with a police officer, but it will never help anyone in the face of a holy and perfect God when it comes to our rebellion, our active rebellion against him. If anyone had a family name, it was Paul, but it didn't benefit him in terms of his salvation. Fourthly, we can put confidence in the flesh, we can take confidence in our flesh in the area of accomplishments. Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. So the first three things that we talked about were things that Paul kind of received just by, he was born in the right place at the right time. The next three things we're gonna look at are things that Paul actually did. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. During this dispersion, when the Jews were, were spread out in the Roman Empire, Many were letting their culture and their tradition and their beliefs be diluted, but not Paul. He maintained the culture. He maintained the languages, which is a really big deal. He made his people proud. He studied under the best rabbis. In our day, he would have been the, the summa cum laude. He would have had the PhDs, but as we're gonna see, he began to see something. He found something. He knew someone that made all those accomplishments look like animal dung on the streets compared to the surpassing worth of what he had found. So he said, all my accomplishments, I could take confidence in the flesh there, but I won't. Fifthly, he could have placed confidence in his religion. As to the law of Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had reached the pinnacle of devout Judaism. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. The word Pharisee means to be set apart. He had followed all these crazy laws that had been invented over the years to make people feel like they were accomplishing the law of God and make Pharisees feel like I'm separate than you. We're better than you. Paul kept the Sabbath. He ate the right foods. He memorized the law. I mean, if any of us is tempted to take confidence in how many Bible verses we know, Paul pretty much knew them all. But going through the motions of religious requirements did not provide Paul the joy that he wanted it to, and it will never provide us the joy either. And then lastly, Paul could have found confidence in his zeal. 
As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. <laughs> He's saying the Philippians, yeah, they look sincere. They look zealous. They know nothing about zealous pursuit of God. I murdered Christians. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. And Paul's saying that was me. Sincerity means nothing. Zealousness means nothing. It will, just because you have zeal does not mean you're right. Don't believe what these people are saying. And that's, those are the six ways that Paul could be tempted to take confidence in the flesh. But we need to ask ourselves, why is it that these six areas, and let's be honest, six areas, we'd like, we'd like these things. We'd like to have zeal. We'd like to have a good family name. We'd like to be accomplished. Why is Paul saying that it, it wouldn't bring the, him the joy that he thought it would? And the answer is because our greatest problem, the sickness of our soul, it runs too deep. We're so sick that we're beyond any kind of self-help. We need someone to come in from the outside. We need to be healed. We're so sick that we actually long for things that are gonna make us more sick. That's why we compare ourselves. That we go to places we think we're gonna find joy and all we get is worn out. And Paul knows that pursuing these external criteria, whether they're inherited or whether they're earned, they will only exhaust us and crush our spirits. That's why they don't give us joy. And this is why he's so concerned about the people in Philippi. Now, these are strong words. Paul says, look out for the dogs, for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These three descriptions, are, they're describing one group, this group of people Paul calls Judaizers who follow him from place to place after he's planted a church. They come in and say, this is great. You believe in Jesus. Now you need to do all these other things. You need to add on all these parts of the law to your faith if it's really gonna be real. And of course, the, the main mark of the Jew was circumcision. And Paul is saying, look out. These are the evildoers. These, are, these guys are more dangerous than the packs of dogs that roamed the empire at the time. If you believe in them, your spiritual state is in danger. Paul is saying, joy is not found in the flesh at the end of the day. Joy is found in the heart. So what is the source of that joy? Second point. The source of our joy is knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have real problems. And I so appreciate the way that Paul, he, Paul isn't looking at us and saying, stuff your feelings, ignore your problems, or think positive thoughts. I've, I've shepherded my wife through some very hard times doing those three things. And I can tell you, they're not very, they're not very helpful at all. Paul is coming in and he's pointing us to someone so significant that that person can carry us through all our difficult times. If you go to Walmart and you go to the section of books that's supposed to help us in, in hard times, the section of books that's supposed to make us happier, I want you to notice that all of those books, for the most part, they focus on us. They focus on changing little things about us to make us happier, to make us more joyful. And I don't deny that there might be some, some nuggets of wisdom in some of those books that will be short-lived. But when it comes to our deepest problem, those books offer us nothing. Because if we are truly 
so sick that we don't even know the things that we should desire, then trying to fix ourselves is like trying to find our way through a constantly shifting maze blindfolded. And Paul knows that. And that's why he's not focusing us on ourselves. He focus, he's focusing us on Christ who changes the heart, who restores our desires by saying, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the source of Paul's joy. Paul's saying that if we can focus on Jesus, then, then all our priorities seem, seem to start to fall in line. If we focus on Jesus, then all these other things that we used to value so much that we used to think were gonna give us joy, they're gonna somehow feel more like a loss than anything else. So in our, in our move, we were purging all, a lot of stuff. And, and I was going through one of my kids' toy bins and I found this old Nokia flip phone that I had had. Do you remember the, the, the original Nokia flip phone? Nokia wasn't the only brand, I don't think, that had that, but I remember it well. I think it was about 1998. I had this phone, and I was so proud of it. It was small. It opened like something from Star Trek. You could play at least three games on it, and, and most of all, it, it, it was great because for only $1 a minute, you could call anywhere in the United States, local, long distance. It didn't matter, but now I have an iPhone, <laughs> Now that Nokia flip phone I was so excited about, I wanted so dearly, really does feel more like loss. Or if you're a numbers person, if you create budgets, you have a profit column and you have a loss column. And Paul had worked all his life to put all of these these things, these criteria, these accomplishments into the profit column. But then he found Jesus and compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, all those things he longed for, they more naturally fit in the loss column because they never gave him the joy that Jesus does. So, how is it that Jesus gives us this joy? By fully restoring us from our sin. And I use this word fully very intentionally, because one of the great misunderstandings of the Christian hope, what we call the gospel, is that all Jesus did was come and take the wrath of our sin. That's what Jesus did. And certainly he did do that, but that's just half of the gospel. Jesus didn't just come in and remove God's wrath and that's it. Because if that's all Jesus did, we would be something like a Casey Anthony. Someone who committed a crime, who was found not guilty and left with no reputation, no job, no prospects, and pretty much nothing but the clothes on our back. Is that the Christian hope? No. When Jesus comes, he doesn't halfway trade places with us. He fully trades places with us. So he takes on the penalty that we merit and we get everything that Jesus has earned in in his perfect life. I have no idea what all Jesus earned with his perfect life, but I can tell you it's more than a family name. You want a good family name? How about son or daughter of the most high God? This is what Jesus came to do. Angel and I used to watch um, faithfully for like 10 years a show called NCIS. And there was this, this one scene from one episode that has stuck with me. I probably saw it 10 years ago, eight years ago. And there's a, a World War II veteran 
So he's really old at this point, and, and they, he's found, can, he's been uh, indicted with murder, a murder he committed long ago. And so in the final scene, he's in the NCIS office. He's in a suit and tie, handcuffed. They're about to take him away when the, the lead special agent, uh, Gibbs is his name, he says, stop. And everybody stops. And Gibbs goes in and he pulls back the tie of this committed murderer. And underneath it is the Congressional Medal of Honor. And everyone in that room immediately snaps to attention. Was this man no longer a murderer? No, but he gets all the rights and privileges associated with that Congressional Medal of Honor. And this is a picture of how Jesus fully restores us from our sin. We get all the rights and privileges of the Son of God who lived a perfect life. And that's not simply a murderer who was let off the hook. This is a prodigal son returning to an epic party, fully restored to his father. We receive joy in Jesus, understanding that we were fully restored in our sin. And this is what Paul's saying in verses eight and nine, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Those are all the things that he was, in, those, not his accomplishments or his family name or his ritual religion, not having a, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So more than all the gifts that we get, Paul's saying, I get the giver. I know Jesus Christ Paul's longing is that I may know him. That's the profound joy of the Christian life, that we can know Jesus. And the more we know him, the more we want to know him. There's a, a, a woman in the late 1800s, early 1900s named Eliza Hewitt. She was a school teacher who had a terrible accident, a, a spinal injury, and she was largely bedridden for the rest of her life. But it was in that suffering and in that pain when she began to understand this passage, when she began to understand what it means to truly know Jesus and she penned these words in a very famous hymn. She says, more about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving faith to see, more of his love who died for me, more about Jesus, more about Jesus, more of his saving fullness to see, more of his love who died for me for me that's the source of Christian joy knowing Christ Jesus so the last really practical question we need to ask ourselves is how do we know him how do we know him you know if we're if if you're not a believer how do you know him if you are a believer how do you grow in your knowledge of him and the answer is something you've heard over the past two weeks we die to ourselves and we live for him we die to ourselves and we live for him. And this is verse 10 and 11. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This is the J-curve that we talked about. The suffering, sharing in his sufferings is Paul's dying to his self, his sin, his desires for his life. He probably doesn't want to be in jail, but he dies so that he might resurrect. And, and we, we have all these moments of dying to selves and living for Christ. And those are many resurrections leading up to the great resurrection that all of us will experience as we read from the catechism. One day when Jesus Christ comes back to reclaim everything that's his, when his reign is realized in every corner of this universe, 
And the more we do this, the more we die to ourselves and live for Jesus, die to ourselves and live for Jesus, the more we want to die to ourselves and live for Jesus and die to ourselves and live for Jesus. The more we do it, the more we want it, the more we want it, the more we do it, the more we know him, and the more we know him, the more joy we have. And that's what Paul is talking. Finally, brothers, rejoice because you can know Jesus. There's so many shiny objects all around us that call us, that entice us, that promise us joy, but they will never deliver on that promise. But Jesus can. And when we see Jesus, when Jesus is is the one thing in our prophet column, then all those other shiny objects, they begin to look more like fool's gold. The things that used to allure us no longer have that same captivation and in many ways can feel like loss for what it was that we were wanting them to do for us. It's nice when we get the the right job. You know, it's really nice when our kids make us proud. It's great when our physical health is, is going well. But at the end of the day, those things will never give us true joy. If we're looking to those things to give us true joy, external marks, external accomplishments, then all we're doing is running a spiritual treadmill. You know, we can run faster and faster and faster and faster, but if the goal is joy, we're actually getting nowhere. You can put a TV up and distract yourself all you want, but you're still going nowhere. But, and I'll finish with this, the ironic thing, the crazy thing, is that when Jesus is in our prophet column, when our, our greatest joy is found in Jesus, then we're actually freed up to enjoy comparison. Okay, we're not commanded to not compare. I I don't think that's possible, but we're freed up to enjoy comparison. We're freed up to enjoy financial success without it lording over us. We're freed up to enjoy our children without them having to perform for our own emotional well-being. We're freed up to enjoy other people's successes and not be jealous of them anymore. We can truly Rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. And my goodness, we're not going to resort to comparing who has more hair on their head. (laughs) Jesus is the source of our joy. And that's why Paul's command is to rejoice in him. Let's pray. God, I... As every week when I get to really bathe in your text and think about it and pray about it and, and certainly teach it, I'm more and more convicted and at the same time more and more blessed by the grace that you show us. There are so many things that you could justifiably command of us. You could justifiably command that we do things to show our value and our worth to you and then maybe you'd show us grace, but that's not what you do. You come in and you change our hearts. You mark us at the heart level and then the command is rejoice. Live out a life of joy. And I, I pray that this morning that would be the way that we look at the Christian life. That our, our focus would be on how do we have more joy. We have joy in Jesus Christ that we would want to die to ourselves and live for you and that would produce a joy that people Monday through Saturday would see, that they would be drawn to and that your kingdom would be tangibly affected from the joy in our hearts. That's our prayer, and we give you thanks. 
in the name of your perfect son, Jesus. Amen.